0: Turn in your Bible to John chapter 17. The message that Jesus gave His disciples is over, but Jesus continues to speak now to His Father about His disciples. When I was a kid, I used to eavesdrop on my parents or friends that would come over. I'd listen to the door. And listen to their conversation or pick up the phone and just hear what they were saying. You did it too. (laughs) And I remember when we were newly married that my wife would often do her devotions behind a closed door. She'd sing to the Lord. She'd talk out loud. And I would put my ear up to the door every now and then, every now and then, just to listen to that beautiful expression of her love to the Lord. Now... Relax. I don't go around listening to your conversations. And uh, in fact, some people think I still do. I had some lady came up to me after a service, after I preached, and she said, you were following me this week, weren't you? I go, why do you say that? Well, you preached exactly on what had been happening in my life. I said, um, what's your name again? And first of all, I don't make a habit of doing this. So you, you can relax. Relax. Sometimes, though, it is insightful to listen to the prayers of another person. For instance, when you listen to a child's prayer, it's very enlightening sometimes. Parents have recorded what their children have prayed, and here's a sampling of it. Uh, Debbie, age seven, prayed Dear God, please send a new baby for mommy. The new baby you sent last week cries too much. (laughs) She wants a refund. Eight-year-old Angela prayed, Dear God, this is my prayer. Could you please give my brother some brains? So far, he doesn't have any. (laughs) David, age seven, Dear God, I need a raise in my allowance. Could you have one of your angels tell my dad that? Thank you. Diane, age eight, Dear God, I am saying my prayers for me. And for my brother Billy, because Billy is six months old, and he can't do anything but sleep and wet his diapers. (laughs) Amen. Then one child got his prayers and poems mixed up when she prayed, Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, and if he hollers, let him go, eeny, meeny, miny, mo." I don't know what that's about, but... This evening and the next couple weeks, we get to eavesdrop on Jesus praying to His Father. It is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Gospels. It is an intimate prayer. It is a very insightful prayer. 620 words of Jesus speaking to His Father in prayer. It is what we really should call the Lord's Prayer. It's the real Lord's Prayer. It's His own prayer. The Our Father is the disciples' prayer. He gave that for them to pray. This is the Lord praying. And what's so great about it is it shows us what's most important to Jesus Christ. What is so important to Him? What's on His heart that He would want to talk to His Father about in the last few moments, the last few hours that He has before He goes to the cross? This is the Mount Everest of prayers. The veil is taken aside and we gaze into the very heart of God. It's inspired people, by the way, for generations. I read that John Knox, who was head of the Reformation in Scotland, when he was on his deathbed, asked his wife to read John chapter 17 to him and was listening to her say the words of Jesus as he passed into eternity. Now, I've also read a few who won't comment on John 17. They think it's such holy ground, it is so sublime, so perfect, that it defies any exposition at all, so we should just read it and move on. I disagree with that for one very important reason, I think. And that's Jesus said it out loud. He said it so His disciples could hear what He said. And that's recorded in the very first verse. Look at it. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said. Now this evening, we want to look at several things about this prayer. Generally, we're going to move around to several different passages before we look at it next week, one paragraph at a time. It is a unique prayer. It's the most unique prayer for several reasons. First of all, because of the person who spoke it. This is Jesus praying Which brings up a question. Why did Jesus even need to pray? After all, if He is the Son of God, if He is that unique one with the Father, the second person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal, who forgives sins, who receives worship like He did with Thomas, who claims omnipotence, omniscience, and timelessness, why does He have to pray? In fact, if you look at the first few verses, the way he even phrases them, there is this implied equality with the Father. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. If anybody else prayed that, it would be out of line. It wouldn't fit. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice verse 10. He says, And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Well, if that's the case, there is this equality in sharing. There is this equality in In nature, why does Jesus need to pray? After all, Paul summed up the life of Jesus by saying, Who being in very nature God. So why does God need to pray? Not only that, but this isn't the first time he did it. Altogether, there are 19 instances of Jesus praying to the Father in the Gospels. On one occasion, he spent all night in prayer to God. The very next day, he chose the twelve disciples. And another occasion, he got up a great while before the day and he went out to pray before the day's activities got underway. In John chapter 6, when Jesus knew that the crowd wanted to take him by force and make him a king, he snuck aside and he prayed. Here on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying. As soon as Jesus gets into the garden, he will pray again. And he will say to the disciples, Could not you spend one hour with me in prayer? So why did Jesus pray? Here's the reason. Jesus had two natures, remember? He was theanthropic. He was God and he was man combined together. He was not only God. He was not only a good man. He was the God-man. Two natures merged into one personality. So, as being fully divine, Jesus was completely independent. As being fully human, though, Jesus was completely dependent upon His Father. Paul gives us insight. Who being in very nature God, yet He emptied Himself... He poured, that's the word he used, ekenosin, to pour out something to the very last drop, the emptying of a vessel, so that Jesus, though fully God, became fully man, and in that part of his nature was dependent upon the Father. I've told you before that in the early church, the first heresy was not the denial of the deity of Christ. It was the denial of the humanity of Christ. And I've got to tell you, Some Christians, some of us evangelicals, feel a little awkward dealing with the humanity of Jesus. We're really strong on His deity, but sometimes we are very weak on His humanity. I'm going to read something to you by Max Lucado that's probably going to make some of you feel uncomfortable, and he did that on purpose. He writes, Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing for sure, he was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, Jesus would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired, and his head ached. To think of Jesus in such light is, well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something we like to do. It is uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation, to clean the manure from around the manger, to wipe the sweat out of his eyes, to pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with the hammer. He's easier to stomach that way. There is something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant, packaged, predictable. But don't do it, says Lucado. For heaven's sake, don't. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and the muck of our world, for only if we let him in can he pull us out. I want you to think of it this way. If Jesus Christ thought it was important enough while being on earth to depend upon His Father in prayer as much as He did, though He was the God-man, though He was perfect, though He was strong, how much more should we be depending upon the Father, we who are weak, we who are imperfect? You see, Jesus had two natures. We only have one Jesus was theanthropic. We're just anthropic. So don't run around acting like you're God by not depending on Him in prayer. We need to do it. Jesus did it. This prayer is also unique because of the purpose that occasioned it. And of course we know what that is. We've studied four chapters already. He was about to leave. He was departing. He told them that. I want you to go back to chapter 13 for a moment. To get the feel, the personality, the flavor of what's going on. Chapter 13, verse 36. Their feathers are already getting ruffled as Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me. But you shall follow me afterwards. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Then skip to chapter 14, the first verse. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now why would Jesus say that? Because their hearts were troubled. He could see it all over their faces. They were crestfallen. They were discouraged. Jesus keeps saying he's leaving. So, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 are chapters on discipleship to strengthen them, educate them, bolster them, to prepare them and get them ready for His departure. But He doesn't stop there. After preparing them and educating them, He now stops to pray for them. That's what chapter 17 really is all about. Jesus prays for His own. So, look at chapter 17. Look at verse 9. He says, concerning His disciples, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom You have given Me, for they are Yours. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world. He's about to leave, in other words. But these are in the world, and I come to You, Holy Father. Keep through Your name those whom You have given Me, that they may be one as we are. Now, look at something that is incredibly exciting. Verse 20. He says, I do not pray for these alone, that is, just the disciples, just these 11 guys I've been spending four chapters with. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who would that be? You. Me. Through the centuries, all of those who have come to faith in Christ by the written testimony of the disciples. Doesn't it excite you? How do you feel about being on Jesus' personal prayer list? That's pretty cool. Okay, it's great to have people pray for you, right? When somebody says, I've been thinking about you lately. I don't know what it is, but you've been on my heart and I've been praying for you. Thank you, you say. That's wonderful. I got a Christmas gift once that was really cool. This church gave me uh, several sheets of paper with a list of names. Several of the folks in the church had signed up to pray for me and my family for a week. All 52 weeks of the year were filled up. Their names were on there. Their phone numbers were there in case I wanted to call any personal request. And so through the year, people would say, it's my week this week. It's my turn. Is there anything I can pray for? That was so exciting. But Jesus is praying for me. I pray not only for these men, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. Several years ago, I was at the home of Dr. Billy Graham. It was an afternoon where we had lunch together. It was just a special occasion. I was speaking that night at the Cove in North Carolina. Franklin Graham and Greg Laurie and myself went over there for the afternoon and we had a great Chinese meal. And um, Dr. Graham prayed. And he prayed not only for the food, but he prayed for my upcoming session that evening. And I'm thinking in my mind as he's praying, it's going to be great then tonight. I mean, how can I lose? Billy Graham is praying for moi right now. This is going to be really cool. I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say. (laughs) Then after the prayer, he turned to me and goes, and I'm going to come tonight and listen to you. And I'm thinking, I wanted to verbalize it, but I didn't. Please don't do that. (laughs) Talk about being on the spot. My subject that night was how to preach the gospel. (laughs) Billy, you might learn a few things. You ought to come tonight. No, I didn't want him to come. But Jesus said, he's praying for us. So if you think God's going to answer the prayer of some great spiritual person, how much more the prayers of his own son, the son of God. We often talk about the finished work of Christ. If you've come for any length of time, you've heard me emphasize that the cross was the finished work of Jesus for salvation. It is finished, he said, but there is an unfinished work. The unfinished work is that Jesus, not only in the garden, but He continues to lift you up before the Father. It says in the book of Romans, chapter 8, that Jesus is at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. He's praying for you. Now You might ask, well, what does Jesus need to pray for me? You really need it, that's why. He wouldn't do it if you didn't need it. And the point I want to make here is that like for the disciples... Jesus is not here physically. He was with them physically, but he left. So now Jesus isn't with us physically. So we can come, as we've already pointed out, directly to the Father. Remember in chapter 16, Jesus said, I'm not going to even say that you need to ask me to ask the Father. You just come to the Father directly. So we can pray. We can ask things for ourselves. Jesus said five times in that little paragraph. Ask, ask, ask. So while we're asking and praying things for ourselves, and we can have other people praying for us, we've also got Jesus praying for us, and according to Romans, we have the Holy Spirit making intercession. So just in case you're not praying for the right thing, or your friends aren't praying for the right thing, Jesus will be, and the Holy Spirit will be. As it says in Romans, we don't even know what we should pray for, nor how we should pray, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. Man, you've got it made. You have a fail-safe position before the Father. I love the story I heard about a young girl who was saying her evening prayers, and her grandfather walked by her room and was eavesdropping while she was praying. And he heard something very odd he heard a very reverent tone, but the little girl reciting the alphabet. Dear Father, she prayed, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. She went through the whole alphabet. Grandpa came in at the end of her after the Amen. Sweetheart, what are you doing? She said, well, Grandpa... I know I need to pray and I want to pray, but tonight I can't think of the right words, so I'm just giving God all the alphabet. He knows my heart and I'll let Him take it from there. The Bible says Jesus knows what you have need of even before you ask the Father. This prayer is also unique because of the power that results from it. I want to emphasize again that this is the Son of God praying. Now think about that. If Jesus, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, who knows exactly what to pray for, no fluff, just the heart of the matter, don't you think the Father is going to answer what He prays for? Oh, absolutely He will. In fact, the Father always answered Jesus' prayers. In John chapter 11, at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus facing that tomb before he said, Lazarus, come forth, prayed, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and I know that you always hear me. But because of these people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. The Father will always hear the prayers of His Son and answer them for the reason that He's always going to pray with a bullseye Always praying for the direct will of God. And also because He is called in Colossians 1, the Son of His love. Well, what did Jesus pray for specifically in this prayer? Well, let me give you a hint and we'll just kind of give an overview of it before we move on to our next point. Jesus prays in verse 11 that the Father would protect the disciples. Look at it. Now I am no longer in the world... But these disciples, in other words, are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Protect them. The word here to keep means to watch, to preserve. And that happened. The Father answered that prayer. The disciples were spiritually preserved. None of them fell away. None of them failed spiritually. They all went on with fruitful ministries. There was no doctrinal aberrations. There was no goofy things that they taught. They were kept. Second, look at verse 15. Jesus asked the Father to fortify them, to strengthen them. I do not pray, verse 15, that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one, from Satan's attacks. And the Father answered that prayer. None of them fell to prolonged temptation. They forsook not the Lord, but they forsook the world and followed God. In fact, they went to their deaths. They all became martyrs for the most part, except for John who was exiled in Patmos. They went all around the world preaching the gospel, strengthened, kept from Satan's attacks. Then Jesus asked the Father to unify them. Again, verse 11, He says that they may be one as we are. Unity. Look at verse 21. This is not only for them, but for us. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved loved them just as you loved me. Did the Father answer that prayer? Oh, yes. There was never dissension among the disciples. Okay, there was once a healthy disagreement between Peter and Paul that Paul writes about in Galatians 1, but that served to bring about unity, not division. So Jesus prayed that they would be kept, that they would be fortified, that they would be unified, and the Father answered all of those prayers. That's the power of Jesus' prayer something else because Jesus prayed these things we know that he prayed directly in line with his father's will we can pray these things knowing that they are the will of God if you want to see power in your life learn to cooperate with the will of God after all isn't that what prayer is all about is prayer really to talk God into something he doesn't want to do I mean, is it all about God? Please, please, please. I'll keep saying it. Please, please, please. If you don't answer, I'll keep fasting. Please, please, please. I'm going to twist your arm till you do it. The purpose of prayer isn't to get your will done in heaven, is it? To get God's will done on earth is the purpose of it. So if you want to start seeing power and answered prayer in the yes, affirmative, find out what is the will of God, i.e., in the Bible, and pray likewise. See, there's a big difference between praying for God's will versus praying for my will in His name. You know what the big difference is? Results. I can pray all day for my will in His name. I won't get the results. If I pray for His will in His name, I'll get the results. 1 John chapter 5, we can be confident that He will listen to us whenever we ask Him anything in line with His will. And if we know He is listening, when we make our requests, we can be sure that He will give us what we ask for. That's the purpose of prayer. Back in the 1100s, there was a guy named Francis who lived in a small town of Assisi. Uh, He was a very worldly guy. Wicked man. But he came to a crisis in his life where he didn't want to serve himself anymore. He wanted to find out what God's will was and practice that and do that and pray for that. And he did. He found the poor. He loved them. He served them. He ministered to them. And he would often declare, my will is to do God's will and that's why I'm so happy. There is a fulfillment in that. Find out what is the will of the Father. Pray for it directly. Fourth, this prayer is unique because of the posture that uh, accompanied it. I want you to notice this. I hope it breaks every idea of what the proper position of prayer is. Look in verse 1. It says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven. Uh Uh-oh. He didn't close his eyes, did he? He didn't bow his head. In fact, look at verse 1 of chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, I want you to, I'm going to keep all of these together. I want you to go back to chapter 14 for just a moment. Because we're not told that when Jesus prayed this prayer, if he was standing, if he was sitting, But you'll notice something. At the end of chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus says, But that the world may know that I love the Father, as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Notice that next sentence. Arise, let us go from here. Where were they? In the upper room, having Passover. Now Jesus says, Time's up. Let's get out of here. So they got up, presumably, and they started walking from the upper city of Jerusalem, downward, past the temple area, past the dung gate, toward the Kidron Valley, over the Kidron Valley in chapter 18, verse 1, into the Garden of Gethsemane. So that chapter 15 and 16 were spoken en route on the road. And so was chapter 17. While Jesus was walking... With his eyes open, that's a good thing to do when you're walking. (laughs) Jesus prayed. Why did he lift up his eyes? That denoted anticipation toward heaven. Home. I'm going home. He's looking to the Father to elevate his thoughts. Psalm 123, David says, I lift up my eyes to you, O Lord, to you whose throne is in heaven. So David even said, I'm looking upward. Remember E.T.? This might be a flaky example, but remember when the little alien looks up and goes, Home. That's what David said. Home. Jesus said, Home. Now, what is the proper posture for prayer? Is it kneeling? Is it standing? Is it swaying? I grew up in a church where there were kneelers. And pews, I think they were were all invented by medieval torturers. (laughs) Because it hurt to go to church. I remember you'd kneel, and then you'd sit, and then you'd stand. It was always good to stand because that felt better than sitting or kneeling. And some close their eyes and fold their hands, bow their heads. And you know what? That's fine. If that is your tradition and that is best for you, do it. I just want to tell you that you won't find that in the Bible. That's all. It doesn't mean you can't do it. Many of the Jews would pray with their hands lifted up as if to give God worship and to receive a blessing from God. That was the idea of the lifted hands. In Genesis 18, Abraham stood when he prayed to God about Sodom. In 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat bowed to the ground before the battle with Moab. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus knelt on his knees once he arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane. Later, he fell on his face in anguish. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, as was his custom, three times knelt toward Jerusalem, facing the east for us. It would be the west for him. David, 2 Samuel 7, sat before the Lord in his prayer of thanksgiving. What's the proper position? Whatever works best. I like to walk sometimes and pray. It just My mind goes... Flows better when I'm walking down the street, walking through the wilderness, and just out and my mind goes. I, I pray when I drive. Now, obviously, when I'm driving, especially on a motorcycle, I don't have my hands raised, <laughs> nor do I have my eyes closed. You ought to be thankful for that. <laughs> there were three ministers who were arguing about this. What's the proper position for prayer? Now, as they were discussing this, behind them was a telephone repairman working on something. So this first minister says, it's all about the hands. When you pray, your hands should be folded with the fingers pointed upward to heaven. The second minister disagreed and said, no, I think the knees. You get on your knees, you kneel. That shows adoration. The third minister said, you're both wrong. You should be prostrate before the Lord face down, worshiping in adoration. Just then, the telephone repairman, who couldn't bite his tongue any longer, said, gentlemen, excuse me, I found that the best position for prayer for me was once when I was dangling from my heels from a telephone pole suspended 40 feet off the ground. I prayed like I never prayed before. (laughs) So you know what? Whatever works. There really are no rules here. Whatever will further your prayer life best Because by the way, the position of the heart is far more important than the position of your body. And you know, sometimes people can kneel down or bow down or stand up and sway in front of a group of people because it draws attention to them. And their heart really isn't into it. And Jesus said, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Finally, this prayer is unique because of the priority that directed it. There's a word that is used eight times in some form or another. It's the word glory. It's the Greek word doxa, where we get doxology. Notice how it begins. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. You know what that means? It means literally to make renowned, or to cause the dignity and worth of a person or thing to become manifest and acknowledge. In other words, the priority of Jesus in praying was to show off the Father, to glorify the Father. I I really think our communication heavenward, our our, our talking to God, would be a whole lot different if that becomes our, our focus. To show off God. God, do this because then people will know that you're real, man, and it'll show you off. You'll get the glory for it. A lot of people think prayer is like that little red box in public buildings that says for emergency use only. No, it's for daily use. Not emergency use only. Though you can use it there too but daily use, and its focus is to be the glory of God. How's that for a goal in your life? How about leaving tonight saying, tonight my new goal is to live solely for the glory of God. That's going to be my legacy, that I glorified God and that I lived to please God. And you think, well, this is obvious stuff, Skip. Really? Really? It seems like a lot of Christians have skipped over this basic truth of the purpose of life itself. Some think God is some cosmic bellboy, some heavenly waiter, maid service. God, I need something now, I claim it. You don't order God around. The world doesn't revolve around you, it revolves around God. What will be the anthem of heaven according to Revelation 4? We will say, for you created everything, and it is for your pleasure that they exist and were created. Now, if you live that way, you're going to fight your entire American generation. Because the generation today is a me generation. It's all about me. What about me? What about my needs? What's in it for me? You deserve a break today. I deserve a break today live for yourself, be true to yourself, and all those little philosophic slogans that go around. So what happens is life starts getting measured by personal pleasure. We have this scale of personal pleasure, even God. Will God give me personal pleasure? And then church becomes a self-help program to meet felt needs rather than we gather to learn to glorify God. And so here it is. Jesus, your Savior, is praying. And He's praying for you. He's praying that your life will be kept, will be secure. Is it? Are you allowing Him to take you to heaven? Are you allowing Him to keep you secure all the way from earth to heaven? Are you trusting Him with everything for your eternal life? I read an interesting article about a guy from Lubbock, Texas. Steve is his name. And he talked about a very unusual class that he had. It was a logic class in college. This particular class was known for very difficult examinations. On the final exam, the professor said to the students, I will allow you to come to class with as much information for this test as you can fit on one piece of notebook paper. Almost well, every student wrote very tiny, all of the answers, all the way across, top to bottom, both sides, that they would need for that class. One very inventive student did something different. He brought a piece of paper to class, he put it in front of his desk, and he asked a student in advanced logic to come and stand on that paper. Remember, as much information as you can fit on a piece of paper. And the student of advanced logic stood in front of that man's desk and answered every question in whispers. He was the only student to get an A on the test. (laughs) Brilliant. Logical. One day, we will all take a final examination. Here's the question Why should I let you in heaven? And if you come up with all sorts of, well, I did this and I did that, there's not enough inventive information you can come up with about your life that would deserve heaven on your own. But there's somebody who stood in for you. By His merit, will let you in if you let Him. And He's the one who loved you to die for you, give you this information, pray for you then and still pray for you now. How about it? If you haven't surrendered to Christ, now would be a good night to do it. Let's pray together. Lord, we've gathered this evening to worship, to be encouraged by some of the songs we heard that Brenda sang. We have gathered for fellowship. We've done that before, and we'll do that after the service. Some of us over dinner, some of us in a coffee shop. Lord, you have shown us tonight just how unique this prayer was that your Son uttered to you, Father. In many ways, it is singular. It is unique. In other ways, it is to not only be admired, but to be practiced. Lord, some of us are praying for our loved one right now. One that we have talked to you about on many occasions. One that has been invited tonight. One who has listened politely over time, waited with their own thoughts, even apart from the Scripture. They haven't surrendered yet to you. Lord, some have come on their own out of curiosity, but Father, our prayer is as Jesus, who is the answer, who is the way, who stood in for us and can make sure we pass the final test. Jesus is here tonight to forgive. And we would pray for those, Lord, who have come to church but have not yet come personally to Christ. We recall that Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So we pray, Lord, that there would be a submission, an abdication of one's personal throne to your rule and authority tonight. And authority tonight.